Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about collaborative philanthropy, and that's an area very close to my heart. It's an area that's very much gaining prominence in the headlines these days. And in actual fact, it's happening more and more every day. We have three wonderful guests joining us today, representing two of the world's leading foundations and also one of the leading artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights organizations out there. So joining us today, we have Anna Hakobian, who is the Chief Impact Officer of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, or CIF. She's joining us from London here in the UK. We have Deepali Khanna, who is a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation. She's got a focus on Asia, and she's joining us from Thailand. And we have Anurag Banerjee, who is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Quilt AI. He's joining us from Boston in the U.S. Anurag's a repeat guest, so it's great to have you back on the show, Anurag. And, uh, and also, Anurag and Quilt AI are always very supportive of the show as well. So very much appreciate that as well. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a big heartfelt thanks to Quilt AI, who is our sponsor and who is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever and Visa to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it is an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Anna Hakobian, Chief Impact Officer of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, Deepali Khanna, Managing Director at the Rockefeller Foundation, and Anurag Banerjee, Co-Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Quilt AI. Let's uh, kick things off a little bit by um, finding out a little bit about our respective organizations. I know that, um, that we have some household names here on the show today but it's good to have a bit of an introduction. So Anna, perhaps we can kick off with you a little bit and find out a bit about the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. What's it all about? Sure, thank you, Alberto. And it's so lovely to join you and um, the colleagues on this podcast, very excited to do this. So SIF is an independent philanthropic organization uh, with offices in Addis Ababa, Beijing, London, Nairobi, and New Delhi. We work across several sectors, uh, including maternal and child health and nutrition, girl capital, empowering girls to have the opportunities they deserve, SRHR, sexual reproductive health and rights, child protection, as well as climate change. Um, And uh, underpinning um, all of that sectoral work is a real clear and sharp focus on evidence and data and how we can use that to achieve the greatest possible impact for children, uh, communities, and the planet. Wonderful, wonderful. And give us a little bit of the, of, the, of the sheer size of CIF, because it's not exactly a small little outfit. Yeah, so uh, CIF, we at the moment have over 2 billion um, active uh, portfolio of grants or investments uh, in all those areas that I mentioned. And uh, yes, we're very privileged to be able to channel that to what we believe are going to be the most impactful ways of helping transform lives and helping our planetary health. Excellent. Dipali, what about the Rockefeller Foundation? Give us a little bit of a view of that. Thanks, Alberto. As one of the world's oldest family established philanthropies, 109 years old to be precise, we have had the same mission throughout our history, which is really to serve the well-being of humanity. We have two offices in the U.S., in New York and D.C., and outside the U.S., we have an office in Bellagio in Italy. Um, Our Africa operations are run out of Nairobi, and our Asia operations are run out of Bangkok. As a science-driven philanthropy focused on building collaborative relationships with our partners and ecosystem actors, The Rockefeller Foundation seeks to inspire and foster large-scale human impact. 
we continue to advance new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. We can't do this alone. We strongly believe that collaboration is central to systemic transformation. That's really part of our DNA. Collaborating with networks of thousands of scientists, doctors, and community health workers around the world is how the foundation is able to invent in the discipline of public health at least as we see it today. And you know, for me being here in Asia, it's really special because whether it's the Peking Union Medical College and Hospital in China that just celebrated its centennial anniversary, or it's the Siriraj Hospital here in Thailand or the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in India, these are all iconic institutions that the Rockefeller Foundation built many, many years ago. We worked through the years really advancing human progress with the public sector and with the private sector, and most importantly, the social sector through innovative, sustainable, and scalable solutions. So I'll stop there and hand it back to you. Great introduction. And I always think if there's one organization that has the finger, a finger on the pulse of, of the world of philanthropy, I, I, Rockefeller is certainly a name that comes up. Um, Anurag, Qu Quilt AI, give us a little bit of an insight into Quilt AI, please. How do I go after these two fine people? <laughs> try. You can try. <laughs> um, Quilt AI has been around for uh, almost four years. Uh, it'll be four years in January. And um, we started the company with the intent that the internet is, is a fantastic place of information and insight. And this insight uh, was, was delivered multiple ways. Um, but the, the origin story of Quilt AI tied back to my process of adopting my son when I was on a flight to Bihar in India. And, um, and I was sitting next to uh, a person looking for large philanthropy. And they were headed to Bihar to study contraception among teenagers. And I suggested to this, this lady that uh, she should rely a lot on information on the internet, whether it was Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera. And that became the start of why we do work in the pursuit of giving information from the internet at scale to support large philanthropies around the world. So Quilt AI is a for-profit, um, but we are mission-oriented. We spend 50% of our effort and time on working on two key areas, gender and climate, and some of our work and time is intersected with, with, um, with SIP. Um, we've also recently started work on tertiary education, and um, the last 18 months has been very intense on global health. We've led a lot of anti-vax efforts. We're a small team. Um, we're about 300 people at this point in time. We were 75, I think, before the pandemic, and now we're 300 across 19, 19 countries. Um, we, we're a 65% female forward company, which is rare for an AI tech business, where the numbers are typically the opposite end larger quantities. I'm based out of Boston. We're headquartered out of Singapore. Um, we have colleagues in, in London. And um, our, our mission is very simple. Use the internet, use technology to help philanthropy and collaborative philanthropy scale even more and support the awesome work that you know people like the Rockefeller Foundation and SIP do. Great, great. And it's also quite nice today that we sort of know each other uh, we've interacted with each other in different capacities before, so it's going to be a conversation that's not just um, about professional views, but it's it's going to be a good uh, dynamic as well. Let's um, let's find out a little bit about the state of collaborative philanthropy today. And Anna, let me shift to you. I know SIF is very involved with working with um, with smaller and younger uh, philanthropies as well, and. What's your take uh, in terms of collaborative philanthropy? What's the state of affairs today? Yes, uh, thank you. Thanks very much, um, Alberto. Um, I think I'm seeing increasing uh, very productive efforts across uh, the space of philanthropy to collaborate. Um, we're engaged in a number of such um, initiatives uh, on the uh, health side, um, as well as, you know, some increasingly consideration of climate projects. We've been working um, on something called the Audacious Project, mm. uh, which is hosted at TED and brings together a range of philanthropies to come together, debate, discuss, and co-fund bold ideas that are going to help um, transform the landscape. Uh, on the uh, climate side itself, we've been working with the Climate Funders Group, um, very active group, including Hewlett, Oak, and many other philanthropists, 
that are part of that group, um, again, coordinating efforts, not only on programming, but also sharing best practices around how do we go about um, both estimating uh, before we fund the projected impact, but also going and measuring and uh, validating the results that we're having through our joint uh, funding efforts. Uh, we're also, as you mentioned, working with smaller, younger philanthropies and, and sometimes incubating um, startup funds and uh, foundations to channel particular efforts, such as the Clean Air Fund um, that SIF um, helped incubate and launch, and, and really working with those younger initiatives and efforts um, to not only um, design programs together, but also help think through the whole infrastructure that's needed to drive the philanthropic effort, including, you know, um, viable EME structures uh, within the foundations, um, uh, comms functions, um, uh, how do we think about leverage partnerships? So all of those um, ecosystem elements that are needed to drive the programmatic efforts really excite us. Um, and just a testament of those collaborative philanthropy and efforts, this year alone, um, SIF's funding was done together with an additional $1 billion, um, in co-funding in all of these collaborative efforts. So it, it just goes to show that we're really um, true believers in collaborative philanthropy uh, and, 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 and going in on this journey together jointly. Absolutely. And if I remember correctly, when we were speaking a while back, one of those areas that you think is important is sort of uniting along a, a you know common impact frameworks, right? So that people aren't just reinventing the wheel every time they're trying to do something new. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's an area that we're seeing some really good progress and we still have some ways to go. Um, I think as philanthropists, if we can align on common results and impact frameworks, um, instead of setting up each our own, when we work with grantees and partners on the ground who have very limited bandwidth, and we want that bandwidth really directed um, towards program implementation, I think that would be fantastic if we can align even better um, as funders on those common results framework. And we're seeing some really brilliant examples of that, including um, within that audacious groups, the climate funders and others of coming together uh, and, and agreeing, you know, on maybe a lead partner who will lead on evaluation on behalf of all of the funders, which then makes the life of the grantees and partners on the ground so much easier. Mm. And uh, Anurag and uh, Deepali, how are both of you uh, getting a feel for whether there are certain standards about impact measurement, certain frameworks? Are, are people sort of unifying around certain ways of looking at at different projects and interventions and uh, people sp starting to speak a common language. And I know both of you, so Anurag, even though you're in Boston right now, you used to be based in Singapore and uh, Deepali, you're out in Asia. So Asia is one of those really fascinating places for philanthropy right now where there's so much going on. Is there so much going on that's um, speaking the same language? I, I think that is really critical. And I, I do see significant efforts towards really building up a common narrative, really for us to be singing from the same hymn book and also trying to really have similar impact indicators to assess how we are doing and the kind of transformational change we're bringing about on the ground. I think, you know, more and more when, when one is interacting with the government stakeholders, that's one thing that they really struggle with, because I do think that, you know, there's a lot more that we can do uh, within the philanthropic sector, where we can be much more articulate about a theory of change. And, you know, how are we measuring results and holding ourselves accountable towards deliverable? So I know, like uh, the way Anna mentioned, each one of us is really trying in our collaborative philanthropy work that we're doing to really not stick to the core ways in which we've been measuring impact, but really coming together and really trying to define what our vision of success would be collectively. And for that to be happening, what is it that all of us need to give up or do more of? And I think one of the things, Alberto, we have to be really careful, which I think we necessarily just take it as a given, is the impact of all these measures that we are introducing, how does that impact the partners with whom we are working, the grassroots level organizations? I mean, we've really been trying to push 
how data science for social impact can really move the needle and help uh, our partner institutions with crowd to be much more effective. But then there are issues around capacity, capabilities, and are we as funders really supporting all those core competencies that are needed so that these institutions can really be harmonizing their measurements frameworks around you know, what we are proposing as what would work and really how do we keep the ground reality in the center of our conversations, because otherwise we as funders are sitting and you know at 30,000 feet and trying to really tell the grassroots level organizations, this is how you need to be measuring change. So I think there need to be a lot more conversations and a lot more of uh, you know trying to really work effectively together to really define that common theory of change and how you know, we really build up the downward accountability as opposed to the upward accountability that most of us, you know, are used to. Mm. Mm. And you touched on data science. And so from a data angle, Anurag, how are you finding things? And I know you've worked with diverse organizations. Are they are they sort of again speaking the same language, or are you finding like each person you're each organization you're working with is is an entirely different beast and looking at things very differently? Uh, I, I wish I could say that that we they're looking at things differently. They're they're not, but I think what's been you know, fascinating and, and troublesome for me over the last 18 months is that different philanthropies have asked us to do exactly the same kind of work. Um, and and I, I love this idea and this construct, and I love that there are a billion dollars in incremental collaborative funding so, um, were given to, with, with SIF in conjunction. Um, so I'll talk about two things. One is that we've done the exact same kind of work um, in the same market often, for different philanthropies. And so we, we try really hard to connect people. We try really hard that all our work is a public good in this space and is open source. But we've done, you know, if I name two or three different projects, violence against women during COVID. We've done this piece of work for three different philanthropies <laughs> over the last 15 months. And um, synergies there would have been fantastic in terms of knowledge sharing, even, you know, grant optimization, if you, if you will. Um, We've done work on climate activism and youth activism in same, the same market funded by different funders. And you know, my, my point always there is, can we introduce you to each other? You may know each other. Is there a way to collaborate and you know, use this, this product that is, that is available to, to everybody? On the, the second uh, piece around capacity building, which you know, Deepali talked about and, and Anna mentioned, is the idea when we, we do these grants and these um, workshops with small grantees who typically have less than a $2 million budget, and we find a wide variety of knowledge gaps that they have in regards to how to use technology, whether it's you know technology that is our technology or other technology or other software. And there's an opportunity to standardize that, I think, massively. Um, I think many of the smaller grantees or medium-sized grantees often benefit from multiple philanthropies or work with multiple philanthropies or are, are you know talking to them at different points in time. So from my side, I think the, the effort to to be collaborative will have will have just better return on the dollar, will have more efficiencies in knowledge created and will make grantees much more effective in delivering last mile impact. So uh, I think those are the areas of of concern and focus that I that I would like our philanthropies to focus on on even more. Gotcha, gotcha. And Anna, what? Are, so you're the chief impact officer at SIF, and I think when we met for a coffee a few years back, I already thought the amount of money uh, on projects that you were overseeing was huge. Give me a little bit of insight into um, how many projects you're actually you know, overseeing for impact right now. This the the size of those, and um, and I'm curious to drill down one step further and understand. How do you measure projects when they're happening in collaboration with others? Is is it everything delegated to you? So Anna is sort of doing the measurement for all of these organizations, or do various partners who are involved in the project measure things independently of each other and then share notes? Yeah, thank you, Alberto. Yes, uh, and I really enjoyed our coffee and conversation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Way really back when, stimulating. Wait, yeah, it was a, another ago. world, pre-COVID world. Yes, yeah, so we have at the moment over 200 programs um, at CIF Active programs of various sizes. Some are very large ticket initiatives, you know, over 50 million. 
And we have some which are small and yet still very catalytic, under a million. Um, and I think it's it's important for us to have that mix in the portfolio uh, because we really still like to keep a keen eye on incubating innovation, trying uh, things, experimenting, seeing what works, what doesn't work equally. Um, and so uh, I think we will always have a mix where we have a range of things, what we call proof of concepts, you know, innovations that we're going to try out, which are going to be smaller scale and then larger scale um, deliveries and, and collaborations. And, and I think that's quite a useful mix also for learning and evaluation purposes, because we might invest quite a lot in that proof of concept stage um, in terms of having quite robust um, impact assessments and, and evidence to see if this works. Something is already proven. We don't need to go and measure it over and over. Uh, we need to be very you know, uh, sensible. Uh, does this really now need another impact assessment or are we now gonna focus much more on operational research, monitoring, making sure the implementation is, is rolled out and having those operational insights which a lot of times, and I, I think um, Dipali mentioned this as well, we can strengthen the existing systems of the partners on the ground and the grantees who can also do their own insights and learning. So it's a nice combination and always uh, uh, useful to pause and, and think, where is it that the philanthropy brings its value add in terms of um, its own evaluation and results frameworks and investing in evidence generation, which can really help with some of the organizations. And, and where is it where we need to just play a supportive role, uh, include some funding in our envelopes to the partners and grantees so they can build their own systems and have that ongoing finger on the pulse so they can learn and, and be agile themselves. And I also wanted to very quickly pick up on the point that Anurag mentioned around the uh, sharing of um, what's being done uh, amongst the different philanthropies. I think the whole point of public goods is really important one. And I think as a philanthropy, we should be doing more um, in what we produce and making sure, first of all, looking, can this be a public good and, and sharing it openly with others, um, other philanthropies, big and small. Uh, we have at CIF committed to a transparency policy where we're sharing our evaluation findings, which we hope um, are gonna be helpful. Uh, to a range of actors, not only philanthropists, but also implementers on the ground. We are increasingly going to be sharing also our internal evidence reviews that we do, uh, because I think it's something so valuable. If we've done a thorough evidence review on what works in maternal and child health, uh, if we share it publicly, you know, others can also look uh, and, and, and take reflections from it. And finally, we have um, for a while started, whenever we do... Um, evaluations with third parties, universities, research groups, uh, upfront agreeing with them that the results will be published, uh, whether they're positive results or negative or nil results. Uh, and that's a drive that we've um, started with a range of other foundations and philanthropists who've also signed up to this pledge of, of publishing the results and committing to it upfront before we see the results. I think it's so important um, and it's not just philanthropy, just generally in the development field, it's very hard to find evaluation results, publications on things that haven't worked. And these mm. are just so important because we learn not only from what has worked, but also what hasn't worked. So if we can, um, again, jointly push that, publishing things that haven't worked uh, openly and, and, and sharing uh, insights, I think, again, that will help us go further. That's a very tough one, though, right? Getting somebody to be candid about a uh, an initiative that didn't quite play out the way they were expecting. Yes, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, but and also, there's a sort of golden, you know, <laughs> insights coming out of that. And 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 there are several examples I know in the world of philanthropy where actually first set of results showed something doesn't work. And where partners on the ground, the philanthropies and the governments came together to completely transform things and turn them around and, and get some real life impacts and how powerful those stories are. And I think that will only help uh, people be much more um, open and transparent about their results and, and the power of course corrections and learnings. It makes me think of the uh, the work that you guys did with Educate Girls and the, the development impact bond and how the results from year one and year two maybe weren't as as one would have liked. And then it all 
click together very nicely for for the third uh, measurement and um, and it worked so well. So we've 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 had several examples across our portfolio. Some of our best flagship projects, like Living Goods Program, um, you know, which is really helping save lives on the ground through community health. Um, our first rounds of results in various phases went as strong and solid as, as the uh, grantee or CIF uh, would have liked to, and, and some really hard work and course corrections went uh, from the grantee, the partners and CIF, and we've seen some fabulous uh, results as a result of that. So there is uh, various examples throughout our portfolio of such course correction stories, uh, and I think those are really useful insights to share, and, and also stories where we've had some proofs of concepts at smaller scale, which showed things are working. And then we use that um, to go to audacious projects, such as with Educate Girls, for example, really great results at smaller scale. And we used it to really make a case for uh, a bolder, more audacious project. Yeah. And Dipali, as you seek to enhance philanthropy, uh, and in your case, with a strong focus on Asia, how are you finding things? I mean, does this uh, sort of dynamic that that Anurag and Anna are highlighting does it does it uh, reflect what's going on on the ground in in Asia and Asia being such a diverse area anyway? But uh, what's your take on it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I take um, Anurag's point very seriously around how we continue to operate in silos and not necessarily really leveraging on the scarce, scarce resources that we have. So I think we at the Rockefeller Foundation are really committed to seeing how we can do our part and really walk the talk ourselves. So for example, you know, the energy work maybe a couple of years ago felt that, you know, we really needed to ensure that a billion people could have access to reliable energy. And, you know, with that bold vision, we said, where are the models where we can really get the private sector? Because we saw the government sector really doing their bit. But, you know, if you really wanted to get to scale, you really needed to kind of be able to demonstrate to the private sector as well as the other ecosystem actors as to what the possibilities were. So we put in our resources, which we always consider as high risk capital because we can take risks and we can kind of fail fast and move on and not kind of continue to keep investing in something that's not working because, you know, our board has been very engaged in all the work that we do. And, you know, once we get back to them and say, well, we tried, we tested, we failed, you know, it's time to then give that up, roll up our sleeves and do something more. So going back to the energy work, you know, we were really able to demonstrate on the ground how we could be building up mini grids across India and really be able to address the issues that the private sector was facing. For example, they wanted support on the policy front. They really didn't know how to engage with poor communities because of the rural areas they thought they wouldn't be able to pay. And the third piece was that they really needed debt financing. So as a foundation, we came forward and we said, okay, we're going to help you with all these three things. And as a result of that work, you know, we have about 500 mini grids now operating in India with some important private sector actors who've put their resources behind it and want to now take that to a scale of 10,000 mini grids. With this model, we felt that if you looked around the globe, different institutions were doing similar work. You know, whether they were um, executing programmatic work in the energy space or they were funding this in this space. And we said, let's take on the mission of really seeing how we can set up a global energy alliance for people and planet platform where we can really get everybody together. And this is something that we launched at COP26. This will really promote collaboration to enhance project development and new financing instruments to catalyze billions of dollars. And what we were able to do between Bezos Foundation, um, IKEA Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation, we've each put in $500 million. So $1.5 billion is what we've committed. And all the learnings, all the experience, all our bandwidth that we have across the globe, we are going to bring into this work. Besides that, we've also been able to get a range of multilateral development banks, as well as bilaterals to be investing. So the total kitty in this platform as we speak right now is $10 billion. We have made a commitment that on an annual basis, we are going to be leveraging additional $10 billion so that in the next 10 years, we'll have $100 billion. Now, why am I talking about this? Because this is really 
um, a platform which is going to give an opportunity, whether you're talking to the International Solar Alliance, which is executing on renewable energy across the globe, or you're working with the sustainable energy for all. I think everybody has been doing their fair amount of work, but in terms of are the lessons that they're learning and what's really scalable getting shared? Probably not. This platform will really provide that opportunity for people to be able to really be able to learn in real time and also be able to make quick decisions around things that aren't working. This The group of people working on this platform will also be able to effectively manage risks because with the additional set of eyes from the range of partners that we have as part of the collaborative, that's what they're going to be getting in. There'll be enhanced efficiency because as Anurag was saying, we keep duplicating efforts, we'll keep investing in the same institution over and over again. If we have visibility of what each partner has done in, the, in a particular space, how do we take that to the next level? And most importantly, innovation, you know, because again, how do we keep experimenting? One size is not going to fit everything that we're trying to do. So because of this collaborative work where we've been able to really align on our core values, our vision, and how we define success, we will really be able to now take all this work to the next level where we are going to be making, we have made commitments around the metrics that we want to be driving towards. So reducing carbon emissions by 4 billion tons, create 150 million new jobs, and reach out to a billion people in the next 10 years. So, you know, and all the partners in this platform are coming together to be defining how these metrics are going to play out for each one of them and how do we aggregate what everybody is doing so there's no duplication of efforts, but it's really uh, scaling up the work that is so important to really bring about systems change. Mm. You used the word platform numerous times. Uh, is that, and I asked this for all three of you, is that the way forward? I mean, are we looking at a world where when we think about philanthropy, we're thinking about collaborative platforms for a specific thematic area versus perhaps the older model of one organization intervening and doing something on their own accord. Um, and and as a follow up on that one, then Anurag, for you more than anything, it, I'm quite keen to hear a little bit about the private sector engagement in philanthropy. Um, I think based on our learning, and you know, we've done um, work across different sectors. So we worked around the resilient cities work. We've had the co-impact fund that we launched. We have the Lacuna Fund, Atlas AI. So, you know, over the years, we worked around different models. And I seriously believe Alberta now is the moment where we really kind of build effective platforms and really give the platform the ability. Again, you know, it's about giving up control. If you're going to be trying to micromanage that platform, that's not going to work. So when you're looking at this platform, this platform is going to be an independent, be an independent entity, which will have its own board, it'll have its own CEO. And, you know, all of us who are funders, you know, we're, we're not, I mean, we're all together in it, but it's not the Rockefeller Foundation, which is going to be driving this work. It's all of us who come together to create this platform. We'll really do all that we can for this initiative to really succeed. So I think that definitely will be the way forward based on all the experiences that we've had so far, because, you know, if it's a foundation hosting these things, I think there's just a lot that comes into play. And, you know, it has definitely got inherent issues, but I'll hand it over to Anurag. Mm. As, I was, as I was hearing both Anna and Deepali talk, it, you know, uh, it reminded me of uh, one really interesting fact, which is that this feels a lot like a Silicon Valley conversation, which is the other half of my life. And uh, you talked about failing fast, learning from mistakes, iterating. And what's interesting is that Sequoia Capital, um, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, I think announced that they would now take a much more long-term view on capital. And the, the funny part is that in all my interactions with philanthropies around the world, I, I come away impressed with three things. One is, the sheer persistence and dedication to try and solve problems in an extremely long-term way, which blows my mind. Second is the ability to, and the intent to take risks, right? So obviously we are, I have, you know, we work with SIF, but we work with other philanthropies too. And, and in each of them, I am, I am so impressed by, by that. And the third thing is this idea of, of self-critique, which again, seems like a sort of Silicon Valley thing. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm filled with optimism on that. I think the platform approach is is spectacular because um, then it's just smart people with the three 
three qualifications that I, I just mentioned, working together in conjunction to solve complicated problems. I think from a technology perspective, we see a lot of uh, technology companies, um, friends of ours, uh, sometimes competitors of ours, but people who are focusing more and more on this space. I think there was definitely a large swath of time when technology companies were not focused or thinking about um, philanthropy. And it was more philanthropy post, so you made your money and then you gave it away as opposed to building, building tech to solve problems. And we'll see more technology platforms coming to support these conceptual execution platforms that Anna and Vipali are putting together. So I'm, I'm, I think that is definitely the way forward. Um, mm. Are you finding, Anurag, are you finding the private sector uh, players, the, the corporates, learning about philanthropy? In other words, not necessarily thinking that they have the answers, but thinking, okay, we need to learn a little bit about how to do philanthropy well. Yes, and I think they're now um, getting a little more serious about ESG. So between sort of ESG and D, yeah, diversity, equity, equality, inclusion, racial justice, climate, there is definitely purpose that we see in all our uh, C-level executives as, as clients. Everybody is trying to build better. It's there, there is a movement of goodness in the world in the private sector. And I think that definitely can be uh, we, we have done often pieces of work with philanthropies and private sectors i've worked together with a piece in contraception where a philanthropy that the initial grant and then private sector stepped in and scaled it to make it more sustainable and i think i think we're seeing that a lot more in the last and, and i think covid's just made us better human beings <laughs> so that's amplified amplified the goodness in the private sector yeah and anna on the um on the matter of smaller, younger philanthropies, smaller organizations that maybe don't have the know-how, the experience, the expertise, but that you're still trying to engage with and help and support, how does that all come about? Um, and what does it look like? Because it's one thing to hear about the likes of Rockefeller and SIF and Oak Foundation sort of possibly collaborating. It's another thing when you're looking at a, at a huge outfit like SIF um, collaborating with very small, little organizations that maybe are completely different in terms of their level of expertise. Yeah. Yes, thanks, Alberto. And I think um, it goes back perhaps to the point of the importance of, of sharing openly, transparently the learning journeys of the foundations that have been around for longer, because I think the younger, newer philanthropists, there's just so many shortcuts um, useful shortcuts that we found the hard way <laughs> by learning, uh, failing, innovating, improving ourselves that I think can be so valuable for those starting out their important philanthropic journeys now. Um, so I would encourage all of us to do more in terms of transparency, of sharing, of, of findings, results and learnings. There have also been initiatives like the Philanthropy Workshop and others who have actually brought together smaller uh, newer philanthropies and, and organize like a sort of um, cohort inductions for them, including guest speakers from others in the philanthropy who can share their learnings. And I think those are really fantastic initiatives um, as well uh, to continue harnessing. And, and finally, I just wanted to um, kind of uh, probably summarize uh, in terms of the importance of collaboration in the world of philanthropy, all the new, young and more established. Um, and I was just thinking about it. Um, you know, there is obviously an old proverb which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And, and obviously, um, in the complex issues we're trying to tackle, we definitely need to go far. Um, and as Anurag mentioned, you know, there's this need for long-term sustainable thinking. So we do need to go together. But I wanted to challenge um, ourselves even further and saying, well, could we go far, but also go faster? Because mm -hmm. while these are really long-term important um, problems and that we're trying to solve, there's also real immediacy. There's real urgency to a lot of these um, issues we're trying to solve. And can we become more efficient as, as philanthropies in actually when we do get together, that alignment, that agreement, uh, that elimination of duplication, can we do it even uh, faster so we can indeed go far, but also go faster together? Easier said than done, perhaps, right? 
Yes, but I think if we try, we will get a step closer. Mm. How do you share information, by the way? I'm really curious. All, all these insights, invaluable insights that you're, you're, you're getting from the work that you're doing, how do you go about uh, not only making it um, open and transparent to everybody, but actually letting people know that it's there? Yes. So there's uh, different uh, avenues we use, Alberto. Some would be very targeted. So in the countries that we work in uh, with the partners on the ground, with the governments, we actually do organize and package policy briefings because actually just sharing evaluation results, if I just share like a 50-page report on, on the website, isn't really going to be uh, helpful to all audiences, as we know. So we really need to think of targeted audiences and packaging findings. So we're really doing quite a bit um, in terms of that. Who is the audience? What is going to be the most way useful way of synthesizing and communicating and engaging on the results, importantly, as well, because it's it's just sharing it is, is, is not enough. Um, and, and as well, when we get together with collaborative philanthropy and others, you know, taking the evidence and insights learnings at the point where the decisions are made. So when new decisions are being made about new investments, can we take the learning there? And we've done that quite a bit with the various groups that I mentioned before uh, with philanthropies. So yes, I think knowing your audience and, and tailoring the findings are very important uh, ways. South-to-South learning is another very key area that we're trying to do more of. Um, we're very proud to be supporting the um, ALMA initiatives, which is the African Leaders Against the Malaria Alliance. And, and it brings together um, a knowledge hub that ALMA has created um, that enables the African decision makers and governments to learn from each other on what they've done, not only on malaria, but now they're covering the full range of maternal and child health, reproductive health, and looking increasingly also towards climate uh, indicators across those African countries where the countries have done well, what has helped them do well, and, and sharing that on a south-to-south uh, basis on that um, knowledge hub has been another really useful avenue we find. That's great. That's really great. Deepali, on the knowledge sharing bit, are you finding uh, that things in, in your neck of the woods, uh, that people are as happy to share information and, and insights with each other as they might be in, say, the Silicon Valley mentality, as it were, where people might be? might think of it a little bit differently? I think the starting point, Alberto, is really trust. And, you know, we invest a lot in building trust because if there's trust, then there's that safe space to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think, you know, as an institution, we obviously have a mechanism and cadence internally as to how we really kind of doing on the knowledge management side of things, how we kind of learning, how we kind of improvising, how are we kind of repivoting our strategy? Because as Anna said, time is of essence, you know, we can't afford to like, you know, with COVID is exposed, there's nothing really that's in our control. We have to be pivoting and be very nimble and agile to be able to see what are we learning? How's the external context changing? So internally, we're using a lot of our learnings that are real time from our partner institutions that we're supporting, from the stakeholder conversations, from the convenings of unusual actors that we as philanthropy are constantly getting to the table to really improve and enhance our own strategic thinking. And hence, you know, what are the kind of tactics and work that we are doing that needs to repivot? I think on the external side, uh, you know, of course, our partners are really important. And how do you promote learnings amongst them where they feel comfortable about sharing what has worked or what hasn't worked? And how do you then kind of expand that to the broader stakeholder community where you bring in the government, where you bring in other philanthropies, where you bring in private sector, think tanks, academia. And I think, you know, uh, the more you can build that environment of trust where people are coming with that approach of really trying to help each other to really get to the impactful work where you really want to transform people's lives. I think there's a real appetite to do that, but really creating that safe space, building trust. And also, you know, I know that, you know, many a times I have to tell people, like, you don't have to pitch to me. This is not a pitching moment. Let's just talk about the real issues, you know, that we are facing because as funders, you know, people generally want to put under the carpet the real issues because they don't know how funders are going to be reacting to it. And fortunately, having spent, spent over three decades really on the other side, Alberto, I'm really able to get the teams to understand, look, you know, that's not really 
which is going to really help us. Let's talk about the real issues that you're being confronted with on a day-to-day basis. I think the last point that I wanted to share also is that, you know, within the funders community, like, you know, I was mentioning about the data science for social impact, you know, we realized that, for example, in India, every funder is now talking about data science for social impact, and we're all doing the same thing. So as uh, the foundation, we said, okay, let's get, let's facilitate regular conversations where we begin sharing what we want to be doing, our strategies, our investments, our partners, so that we kind of address the issues that, you know, uh, Anurag had raised earlier on. So I think, you know, there's no one size that fits all, but really having a pulse on the ground and understanding where the different institutions are and how open are they to learning. And at the end, you know, I think, Alberta, it all kind of comes back to you as an institution. If you truly are a learning organization, people are able to see that, you know, and if you're just not yourself a learning organization and you want all the others to kind of be very candid and open and learn from things that aren't working and talk about it, they'll see through it. So I think more and more, how do we really reflect and walk the talk in our behavior, in our interactions with our partners so that you really create that environment where we can learn, improve, and do things better so that we can really bring about change. Yeah. The uh, the bit on the knowledge sharing, Anurag, in terms of sharing the insights that you guys have and uh, what are the opportunities that you can see? Because I know you have so much insight in terms of attitudes, behaviors, uh, and that's not just for people on the ground, but how can you how can you leverage your insight to be able to share this information effectively with with uh, interested stakeholders, whether they're in the foundation space or the or the corporate space or even individual philanthropists? You know, so Deepali is going to you know, call this a pitch, obviously. But my my pitch to <laughs> all 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 funders always is that um, um, you know, can we build a, a global public good product, right? That looks at um, internet-enabled information on the topic areas that we care about. Um, so if it's if it's gender um, and say SRH um, and or if it's misogyny or if it's pay equity. Um, this information exists, it can be tapped within the public good um, and can be accessed by, we, we've done, you know, I think, north of 300 pieces of work in the last four years um, in, in gender alone, and probably half of them have been in SRH and probably 60% of those are overlaps. So I think the, the pitch, if you will, is let's build a global platform, again, to use the words that Anna and Deepali um, talked about, and um, it is it is accessible to all um, from you know small grantees to large foundations to just make make better and as Anna said quicker decisions um, to execute power powered by that information. Mm. So before we wrap things up, I always like to ask everybody who's on the show for a key takeaway that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode. And that can be anything at all. But um, perhaps, Anna, we start with you. What's that one thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they they finish listening to today's show? I was just thinking, Alberto, um, obviously, my call for action was to go far, but also go faster. Uh, and I think you rightly pointed out, it's not an easy journey. And I think my key takeaway is um, it's not going to be easy, uh, but we were not in the business of easy as philanthropists and as change makers. Uh, and I think if we believe uh, in the power of change, I think we can make that happen. And um, I want to remain optimistic. And I think there's enough examples um, of collaborative philanthropy that make me feel that we can go uh, further and, and faster. I absolutely love it. Good sense of urgency and optimism and energy, which is great. Dipali, give us your key takeaway. So I'll um, talk about the three C's of collaboration. Choose your partner strategically. Value alignment is absolutely critical. The second one is capital shouldn't be the only driver for collaboration. Um, Intangible assets like networks, knowledge, expertise, as well as goodwill are all integral to making systemic change. And the third C is look at the continuum of capital. While philanthropic capital is traditionally identified as patient capital, it is also high-risk capital. 
And I think just one more point, uh, you know, we were talking about the private sector and how the private sector can learn from the, from the philanthropic sector. I think it's the other way around also. There's so much that we can learn from the private sector, the rigor, the metrics, the accountability measures. And I think that's something that is also, you know, where we need to create more pathways for that kind of sharing and learning to be happening so that we within the social sector space in the philanthropic space can definitely do much better in terms of really showing results and impact. Excellent. And yeah, indeed, I think there's a lot that the private sector has to offer uh, that uh, that the philanthropy space and those who care about the sustainability agenda can, can learn from as well. Anurag, your, your parting thoughts, your key takeaway? So my key takeaway always has been about uh, the power of the internet, but you know, just hearing Anna and Deepali speak, I think my key takeaway for people listening to this podcast, and I know thousands of thousands do on a weekly basis, would be would be that we just need more people to come work at these foundations, to build technology to support these foundations, to give time, effort, thought, uh, to do more on impact. Um, I think the time is now. So my key takeaway would be for any listener to figure out a way to contribute uh, time, effort, money, job, career into, into the space. I love it. Wonderful. Well, I have to say a big heartfelt thanks to the three of you for taking time out of your extremely busy schedules and joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. Anna, it's always good to hear your insight and I'm just amazed by how much you're doing. Deepali, it's good to sort of meet you for the first time. I know we haven't had much chance to connect beforehand and it's it's a pleasure to do so. And Anurag, as always, thank you uh, for sharing your insight with us and also for your support, which is uh, which is invaluable for the show as well. So thank you, all three of you, and I wish you all the very best with your with your work in trying to improve our world. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Alberto, for connecting us all. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to a great conversation with three wonderful guests. Anna Hakobian, Chief Impact Officer of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, SIF. Deepali Khanna, Managing Director at the Rockefeller Foundation, and Anurag Banerjee, Co-Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Quilt AI. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, it's so much appreciated. For information on 150 episodes with remarkable thought leaders, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Don't forget to click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with your friends and family, and do leave us a rating and a review. It's always very much appreciated. Thanks so much, and I'll catch you next week.